brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. The downstream effects of closing schools were extremely detrimental. And I think we're going to be seeing the after effects of this for a very long time to come in terms of less U.S. productivity, less educational attainment, deaths of despair. If you combine the question of health impact plus economic impact, the states with the lighter regime did better. Hello, I'm Jonathan Tobin, Editor-in-Chief of the Jewish News Syndicate, JNS.org, and you're listening to Top Story, a weekly podcast where I analyze the most important stories happening in Jewish news around the world. Each week, I will break down politics, foreign policy, and culture to provide insights into what is going on behind the headlines. Hello, and welcome to Top Story. Thank you for joining us. Today we have an important conversation with author and former Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tevi Troy, to talk about how the government failed on the COVID pandemic and whether we should have an amnesty for those who did so much damage to society and children, as well as the recent surge in anti-Semitism. But before we start, I want to encourage everyone to like this video and podcast, subscribe to JNS, and click on the bell for notifications. Also, we would love to hear from you. Please write to us at editor at jns.org and let us know where you listen or watch the show and what you think about it. We also want you to be aware that you don't have to wait a full week for more top story analysis. I'm now offering a daily top story podcast so that I can share with you more news and analysis about the most significant issues we're facing today. You can find the Daily Show under Top Story with Jonathan Tobin on the JNS channel on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now to today's program. 33 months after America first went into a COVID lockdown and with the onset of winter prompting new fears about communicable diseases, we, are we really ready to take a hard look at what happened during the coronavirus pandemic and draw serious conclusions about what worked and what didn't and who misled the public? If you read and watch the mainstream media, you know the answer to that question is a hard no though we now know a great deal about the enormous damage done by lockdowns and school closures and the fact that mask mandates and other measures didn't work, there has still been zero accountability for the disaster that wrecked the American economy and harmed children in ways that we are only just beginning to understand. 
The architects of these policies, who continue to cloak themselves in the mantle of science so as to ensure that their actions cannot be questioned, have eluded efforts to force them to explain how and why, despite the lack of data or actual scientific evidence, they foisted this catastrophe on a world that was all too willing to listen to the advice of experts, many, if not most of whom, turned out to not know what they were doing. They helped foster a climate of fear that not only led to foolish policies, but to an active effort to silence dissenting views on lockdowns and mandates by labeling those dissenters as purveyors of misinformation. Mainstream media, big tech companies, and the government all colluded in an effort to ensure that bad policies stayed in place until long after ordinary people, let alone experts, knew they were a waste of time or causing incalculable suffering, and dissenters were silenced. On top of that, now we have a movement from journalists who claim that what we really need is a pandemic amnesty to ensure that accountability never happens. But how can scientists who claim to be acting from evidence when that wasn't true now be allowed to falsely claim that the science changed when that is a lie, whose only purpose is to allow them to go on with their lucrative careers as if what they had done was a success rather than a failure? How can public health officials who move COVID patients into nursing homes in states like New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, causing a massacre of the elderly, escape criminal and civil charges for what they did? And yes, I'm referring to people like disgraced former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, as well as sitting governors like New Jersey's Phil Murphy, and current Federal Health Assistant Secretary of Health, Admiral Rachel Levine. Why should people who kept schools closed, despite the harm this caused children and families, and yes, I'm talking about teachers union leaders like Randy Weingarten, not have to be called to account for their disastrous decision? How can teachers unions who worked that hard to push for measures that hurt to kids be allowed to go on as if they had done nothing wrong? It's true that a lot of what was said at the start of the pandemic was wrong. For example, my worst fear in March 2020 was that the elderly would be sacrificed in the pandemic if shortages of life-saving equipment like respirators were only given to younger and healthier people with better chances of survival. And I wrote about that. But my fears turned out to be misplaced. Instead of sacrificing the elderly to save the young, we sacrificed the young, children who were in little or no danger from serious illness, in order to theoretically protect the elderly, or at least those not in nursing homes, where people like Cuomo and Levine could facilitate their demise. But how do we go forward from this unmitigated disaster which has injured a generation of children and undermined both faith in the foundation of our system of civil liberties and free speech traditions? And how can we ensure that the experts don't do this to us all over again during the next pandemic or threat of one as they continually promise to do? One person who has not only an idea about this, but also some real expertise in matters of public health, is Tevi Troy, the former Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services from 2007 to 2009. 
In a recent article in Commentary Magazine, he outlined what was wrong with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's plans to reform itself, which he said was bound to fail since it's it and its director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, didn't seem to know what went wrong or how to fix itself. Tevi Troy is a senior fellow and director of the Presidential Leadership Institute Initiative at the Bipartisan Policy Center. He's a best-selling presidential historian and served as the White House liaison to the Jewish community for President George W. Bush. He's the author of four books, including The Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump, Intellectuals and the American Presidency, Shall We Wake the President, Two Centuries of Disaster Management from the Oval Office, and What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted, 200 Years of Popular Culture in the White House. Tevi Troy, welcome to Top Story. Thanks so much for having me. It is a real pleasure and honor to be with you. Well, Tevi, it's our our pleasure. Um, and it's great to have the second Troy brother, since we have already had your, your brother, the great historian Gil Troy on. Uh, we'll have him again too, but we couldn't have him again before uh, before we had you. Anyway. Well, there's thanks. a third Troy brother, so maybe you can oh, get I know, I know, but we'll, we'll, we'll have to work on getting him, uh, him uh, on someday too. At any rate, um, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And I want to start by asking you about the article you wrote in commentary this fall about the CDC. Can you tell us exactly where you think the CDC went wrong and why its efforts to reform itself seem doomed to failure? Well, thanks for that question. And I'm glad you liked the piece in commentary, which is my favorite place to write. So the CDC has gone in a direction that is extremely problematic. When you look at the title, the name of the organization, the Centers for Disease Control, you and everybody else rightly thinks that oh, this should be an organization that is going to stop me from getting hit with a communicable disease to stop a pandemic outbreak that can shut down as we saw our economy and threaten our entire way of life. But the CDC does not, and for a long time, has not seen itself that way. They see themselves as an organization that is designed to address behavioral health issues. That means if you're smoking, if you're drinking, if you're driving without a seatbelt, if you're eating fatty foods, if you're not exercising enough, they are targeting those problematic behaviors as opposed to spending their focus and attention on preventing the spread of communicable diseases. And when the pandemic struck in March of 2020 in the U.S., but uh, it, it was coming around earlier and CDC should have known about it earlier, when it struck, we found the CDC, because of its misbegotten focus on these other issues, was not prepared, did not handle it well, and left the U.S. behind when the U.S. should be the number one country at its preparedness in terms of dealing with communicable diseases. Wow, that's that's something, because that's not, I, I don't think, I'll, I mean, as much as I'm sure not everybody follows the CDC as closely as, as you, because you're someone who served, you know, um, in the Health and Human Services Department, I don't think that's something um, that most people understood properly. So how can we ensure that the CDC and the rest of the health bureaucracy is not only better prepared for its next challenge, but that it will not slip into the same sort of behavior? Because that's the thing. I mean, they were focused on other things. So, you know, how, how can it change itself to become more about preventing, you know, the next pandemic, which so many people keep threatening us with. 
Well, first of all, I'm not one of those who believes the next pandemic is coming tomorrow. While I do write about pandemics and, and communicable diseases, I don't think that we have one of these every year. We have them once a generation or every two generations. So we that's need to reassuring to hear because you know we've we've had so much you know, and we we got so accustomed to gloom and doom throughout you know the you know the two now you know two two year plus years of the pandemic um, that I think a lot of people are now sort of acculturated to believe that it is an every year thing and not just a once a generation. Right, and they feel like everything that's coming down the pike, every new disease you hear about is a civilization ending event. Like monkeypox, there was a big freak out about, and now they've declared monkeypox over. And now I know there's a lot of concern about RSV. And there are people who are hit with these diseases, but the question is not whether some people either get hit with the disease or, or, or unfortunately succumb to a disease. The question is, can our public health system sustain itself when a disease hits? And can we keep our economy going? And can we live without fear? And for most diseases, yes, we can do that. So that is the goal. The goal is not to prevent anyone from ever getting sick with any disease, because that's not an, a realistic goal. The goal is to make sure that these diseases don't spread out of control, that we don't have a pandemic, and that we don't see the kind of dysfunction that emerged back in 2020. Now, in terms of your question, what can we do about CDC? You said there's a danger that they could be sliding back into that behavior. They've never left that behavior. They still have that focus on behavioral health. And in fact, in the article in commentary, I talk about how a relatively small number of the entire CDC workforce was working on pandemic issues because so many of them are focused on other things. So in order to fix this, I think, first of all, we need Congress to actually authorize CDC as a specific entity. What I mean by that is the CDC was created by executive action to deal with malaria in World War II era. And Congress appropriates funds, meaning they give money to CDC annually, but they never authorized CDC as an entity with a specific set of roles and responsibilities. So that has allowed this mission drift to happen. So what I would like to see is, first of all, a congressional authorization of an entity that is what CDC is supposed to be, meaning an anti-pandemic fighting agency. And I would like to see the behavioral health aspects of CDC either put elsewhere, so CDC can focus on the task of preventing pandemics, or a new entity that is separate from CDC that focuses specifically on the pandemic prevention efforts and let them continue to do their behavioral health, but they won't be able to go to Congress and say, we do such important work in preventing diseases, they'll have to say, we're a behavioral health agency and you're going to have to fund us as, as that. And you'll see, they won't get as much funding. Well, as, as you just summed up that question, I mean, why would that happen since the CDC is, you know, likes it just fine the way it, you know, likes itself just fine the way it is. Um, and if there's anything that we learned during the pandemic, it is that, you know, government agencies and something we should have, you know, certainly known long before government agencies, when they're given more power and given, you know, expanded powers and the spotlight of uh, so much attention that it got. Um, who knew who the head of the CDC was or, or you know, who knew who Rachel, Rochelle Walensky or Anthony Fauci was before, you know, 2020, um, you know, then they became sort of demigods. Um, You're not even mentioning but, the guy who was actually head of CDC during the pandemic is Robert Redfield. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're just focusing on, you know, the, the today's celebrities. 
But, um, you know, why would they give up that power? And why, you know, it's like everything we know about government knows that when you give an agency power, when you give it prestige, give it money, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll die rather than give it up. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Yeah, of course. And Ronald Reagan famously said, there's no thing, there's nothing closer to immortality than a temporary Washington agency. So yes, I understand the point. But CDC screwed up so badly in this recent episode that even Rochelle Walensky, whose name we now know, yeah. <laughs> said that CDC was found wanting and said that we need to do some kind of reform, which spurred my piece in commentary. It seems to me that there is now a moment, there's an opportunity where we can say, hey, CDC needs to fix itself. CDC recognizes it needs to fix itself. Now we're talking about the nature of the fix, and that's better ground for us to talk from, because now there's universal agreement that there have to be improvements. Now, as I wrote in commentary, the direction in which Walensky is going with this so-called reform effort is inadequate, to say the least. But at least we're having a conversation about what we should do with CDC. And now there's a Republican majority, uh, slight, but Republican majority in the House. And to the extent we're going to talk about doing something different with CDC, they will have a different perspective. It won't be only behavioral health. It'd be how do we focus on these pandemic prevention efforts, which really are potentially civilization ending if you have a pandemic get out of control. I mean, that's much more dangerous than if you have a population of people with suboptimal health for behavioral reasons. Obviously, we want people to eat right and not smoke and, uh, and exercise all the time. But if I have that kind of behavior, I don't spread it to you. And that is the difference with a pandemic. The disease is communicable and deadly, and it can go from person to person in a way that behavioral health missteps cannot. Well, that's true. The streaming services um, are not filled with shows about um, civilization ending because people overeating and not exercising. You, you know, you, you, you know, they seem to put out a new one every, you know, every week about the end of the world, often about pandemics. Um, but let's broaden the lesson a bit, lens a bit, and talk a bit about the whole idea of accountability. Recently, there's been a, a number of articles published in prominent venues advocating for what they call pandemic amnesty, 
which is to say, give a pass to everyone who advocated for damaging and failed policies. And this is a time when there is actually no sign that our institutions that did fail have shown any interest in accounting for their mistakes. What do you think about this idea of amnesty uh, for the pandemic? Well, first of all, I don't really expect accountability. It'd be nice, but I'm not expecting it. And second of all, I'm not sure amnesty from what, right? I mean, if somebody gives bad direction and says we should close the schools when they shouldn't, if people say you should wear masks outside when wearing masks outside doesn't really do any good, I don't know what the crime is. So we yeah. can criticize them and we should criticize them. And I'm happy to call them out and I'm happy to write articles and commentary and other venues saying that this is a problem. But I don't really understand what the amnesty from what is. Do they want amnesty from blame? Well, that, you know, that's for uh, really? the heaven to give. The heavens to give. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's I, I think it's more like a preemptive strike against sort of revisiting these issues. I think it's a it's kind of a shut up question. Um, you know, you mentioned things like masks and how I mean, I think we all understand how masks became politicized. It, it sort of became, you know, sort of Team Blue's equivalent of the red MAGA cap for a long time. I think in some ways it still is. As you you still, still see people you know, with masks. In you still see people, you know, not just indoors, but outdoors. Or outdoors, um, you still see the outdoors. And I don't think all of them are, you know, like, you know, cancer patients. Um, you know, these are people who have been a culture, you know, they're basically COVID fear addicts. Um, we've created a generation, you know, we've, we've almost created a generation of COVID fear addicts. And that's something that we don't seem to be willing to discuss, um, at least not that much. Look, I, again, I think that uh, there is blame to go around. I think we should be very hard headed in terms of looking at what went wrong in this last uh, in this last outbreak, in this last pandemic. Uh, in addition to my piece in commentary that you talked about, I also wrote a piece in National Affairs on COVID, what went right, what went wrong and what we need to do next time. And I think there needs to be a lot of that analysis. Recognize that there are some things that went right. Recognize there were a lot of things that went wrong and recognize that we can do and must do better next time. Well, let's talk about that. What went right? What was good that the government did? Um, and what was the worst? Although I, I, I think we, we know easily what the worst was. What was the best that the government Well, you added did? some words that I didn't say. You said what was right, good that the government did. You know, the, the best things that came were really came from the private sector in terms of the development of an mRNA vaccine right. that while I think it has been oversold in terms of claiming that it doesn't allow the spread of the disease, I don't think that's true. It does appear to mitigate the symptoms. So you're not going to have as many people dying from it. So I think that was an important private sector development. But I will also credit the government here with Operation Warp Speed, which I think allowed that vaccine to develop and reach market much more quickly than it would under normal processes. That's so I think very that's true. the number one thing that went right. Um, and probably would of, have gone gotten out even a little quicker, perhaps, if um, a presidential election wasn't about to happen and there was some effort. I agree. Not... It is possible that if this was not the fall of 2020, they could have gotten it out two months faster. Maybe. I, yeah. I think it's possible. But it there, there, there was clearly a desire not to give Donald Trump the credit for it. Um, and, you know, so so let's let's talk a little bit. I mean, you know, we're, we're analyzing this and we have a, at least a little perspective. What did he do right and what did he do wrong, in your opinion? So I think that those press conferences were a good idea. 
meaning those initial press conferences where they got up and they talked about what's going on. They give the people who were in charge uh, an opportunity to tell us what's happening. I think those were a good idea. I think there was some very problematic execution. And I think he himself, meaning the former president, should have talked less than them. And obviously he said some things that were really problematic, like the thing about the bleach and the light and all that. So um, I, I think it's a good idea to have public health professionals talk in a setting where they can show a lot of um, trust and show expertise. Uh, Donna Shalala, who is a, a friend of mine and who worked on, works on a bioterror commission with me, she was a secretary of HHS under Bill Clinton. She says that she always liked to have the people when there was a, a public health emergency, have the HHS experts speak with white lab coats on because that conveyed authority. I think that's the doctor, the doctor is speaking. Be quiet. Right. The yes. doctor is here to speak with you. So anyway, I think those are, are good ideas. And um, she also said she doesn't like them happening from the White House. She thinks you're better off having it at a CDC podium. So I think there are ways to make these less political. And I think that would have been a good thing. So, but that said, I think communication when you have this kind of situation is essential. And it's got to be trustworthy communication. You, sh you shouldn't be overselling things. You shouldn't claim things that aren't true. And you know you can get called out on them. You can't suppress information. So I think uh, for the most part, the, the government had an opportunity to get the word out. And I think that is in general a good thing, although we will question the execution and some of the things that were said. Um, I think Operation Warp Speed, let's pu push through some red tape to get stuff out as quickly as possible, also a good thing. So those would be high on my list of things that went right. Um, I, oh, I also think that the um, the initial spending bill that allowed the economy to stay afloat in the early days when everybody was locked down, I think that was a good idea. However, I think some of the extensions of uh, uh, rent control, for example, or, um, or, or um, some of the PPP that, that kept going for months and months after the pandemic really was no longer shutting down the economy. I think that just added to our debt burden. And now we're looking at 30 trillion in debt. And I, I want to look at ways to see if we can reduce that debt or at least reduce it as a size of, of the economy as opposed to trying to increase it by a trillion dollars every year. Because I think we're just digging a bigger and bigger hole. And I've written about presidents and disasters in, in my book, Shall We Wake President? I actually specifically talked about coronavirus as a threat and something that we needed to look at. This was back in 2016. But I also say in that book that the number one most predictable disaster we face in our future is some kind of economic collapse based on our unsustainable level of debt. And we are not paying attention to that. And I think we really need to. Yeah, well, that seems to be a concern um, that neither party is interested in anymore. I think, you know, Paul Ryan's gone from Washington. He was the only he was the one who really cared about it. Um, and he seems to be distinctly out of fashion um, from both ends of the spectrum. Um, let me turn to another, just as long as we're doing some, you know, going, doing some COVID accounting. Obviously, it's sort of the number one celebrity that came out of uh, the pandemic was Dr. Anthony Fauci. Um, he has become the focus of a lot of, on the one hand, he was the focus of a great deal of sort of godding up, as we'd say in the press, of, of you know, sort of hero worship. And he's also become now the focus of enormous anger and resentment as the symbol of everything that went wrong, of government overreach, of lockdowns, of school shutdowns. How much of this is justified? How much of it is just that he's just, you know, sort of the symbol for everything? 
It's a good question. And I have complex feelings about Dr. Fauci. I worked with him when I was in the Bush administration. Well, that's no why has, I specifically wanted to talk to you about it. Yeah. No one has dedicated more of their life and time and energy to preventing communicable diseases. And uh, that, that, I mean, that has been his focus. And to the extent I'm criticizing our public health establishment for focusing on behavioral health, that is not one of Dr. Fauci's sins. Uh, so I think he is a guy who, again, I, I have a lot of respect for and who has really spent a, a whole lifetime trying to prevent communicable diseases. That said, there are certain things he did in the pandemic, and I'm not talking about getting something wrong. So you know, saying there we should be masking when maybe masks were less effective than we thought. But I'm talking about the things where he said something knowing that it was not true in order to get a, an intended result. And that was what happened early on where not just him, but a lot of people in the public health establishment argued against masks because they wanted to save the masks for the frontline responders. That was not the right approach. You could say, hey, we are trying to save N95 masks for the frontline responders, but you should see if you can get a mask, if American manufacturers can develop masks, if there are other ways to get masks, there may be some benefit to masks, which the early data did seem to suggest. Um, I, I think that the uh, his apparent desire to stop any questions about whether the, the disease came from Wuhan or China, uh, I think that's problematic. And, and I think his defense of the, um, the type of research that may have led to the disease, I think is also problematic. So uh, again, I argue in favor of transparency and openness and honesty when you're talking about these diseases, even if they reveal problematic things about yourself or even if they will, may lead the American people to do things you don't necessarily want them to do. Because if you lose trust, then you can't get up there as a public health official and say, take this jab in your arm, take this medicine, stay home uh, when you're sick. You need that credibility in order to convey difficult messages and difficult assignments to the American people. And I think that Dr. Fauci and some of the other people in the establishment harmed their credibility by saying things that at the time they knew may not be true in order to get a certain result. Yeah, well, I think that's undoubtedly true. I mean, he's, you know, it was his function as being the most prominent talking head during the pandemic. Um, but uh, you, you, you mentioned one point that I think is, is terribly important, but gets very little. I mean, really not that much coverage. Why is it that we have had no commission um, I mean, it might be just politics. I think that's the easy answer. Exploring where this came from and why it happened. Um, that seems to be the question nobody's allowed to ask. At least for a long time it was. It was immediately dismissed. You mentioned Fauci uh, certainly doing that. Um, why won't we talk about this? Especially since the country where it did begin is still engaging in these you know, massive, crazy lockdowns. Um, what's going on with this question? Yeah, look, there, there's a larger issue here with China. I mean, China, in a way that the Soviet Union never did, is aggressive about its PR and its reputation and the way it's portrayed in international organizations and in international culture. There's this great book I read recently called Red Carpet that talks about how China throws its muscle around in Hollywood so that you will never see a Chinese bad guy in the screen in any way. You'll never see the Chinese intelligence services as in any way being a challenge to the United States and its, and its government when it manifestly is. I mean, you're constantly seeing the Chinese intelligence services as either allies of the U.S. 
or maybe even the good guy when the CIA might be corrupt. Now, contrast this to the Cold War, the 1980s, which you and I remember well, when in nearly every Hollywood movie, the KGB was the bad guy or Russian military, Russian intelligence. So we are setting ourselves up for a situation in which we can't even discuss China openly in our pop culture outlets. So it's even worse in government. The World Health Organization is concerned about um, maybe alienating China. So they, they're not looking too deeply into it. And our public health agencies also have the same concern. Now, at the same time, there's concern on the Republican side that any effort to do a deep dive into what went wrong will just be exclusively an anti-Trump bashing session. So I think some Republicans are reluctant to do it. So there's a lot of political interests in not having this deep dive into what went wrong. And I, I agree with your premise, which is it's a problem. We need to look at what went wrong so that we can figure out what went right. And that's why I'm writing these pieces like the one I did about CDC for commentary or the one about what went wrong, what went right, what we should do in the future for national affairs. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Right. Well, one of the great tragedies of, of COVID was the closing of the schools and the harm that caused children. I think that's, you know, that, that's undeniable now, whether the data is in or at least the beginnings and sort of the tip of the iceberg of the terrible data from that. It was known fairly early on um, with respect to COVID that the elderly were most at risk and children not so much. Yet we still shut down schools and in many cases kept them closed until the end of 2021 or later. Why did this happen? I, you know, now when you ask this question, Fauci says, not me. You know, Walensky, they all say, not me. You know, it was somebody else. Why did this happen? And why were educators, never mind public health officials, so blind to the harm that this was causing, not to mention teachers' unions eager to keep it up as long as they could? Well, there's one person who can't say not me, and that is Randy Weingart, right, the head of the teachers' union. Uh, she was adamant about not letting the, the schools reopen. And look, she is a very powerful force in the Democratic Party. Uh, she, I mean, almost no Democrat gets elected without the support from them. So they provide a lot of money and they provide a lot of voters. They provide a lot of logistical support and they're just incredibly powerful. So they, they it's very hard to question them within the democratic coalition. So that, that I think is one issue. Uh, the second thing is, look, as with war, we're often fighting the last battle. So in the 1918 flu, that hit kids, young people worse than it hit older Americans. And so there was an initial thought, hey, let's make sure we protect the children. And then once we saw that it was actually hitting old people, then there was a thought, since we didn't really know how the disease spread so well, well, we want to protect grandma and grandpa from the kids giving it to them because the adults were dying, older adults were dying at higher rates. Um, so, so some of it can fairly be attributed to a lack of knowledge about how the disease spread. I mean, it, it is a wily virus 
and it was spreading from person to person in ways that we didn't anticipate. So there's, there's no doubt about that. But I do agree that the downstream effects of closing schools were extremely detrimental. And I think we're going to be seeing the after effects of this for a very long time to come in terms of less U.S. productivity, less educational attainment, deaths of despair. I mean, these are all real problems. And I, I don't think everyone uh, in the public health establishment fully anticipated this. But uh, I think the closure of the schools has had other detrimental effects beyond just what we're dealing with in the disease itself. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it, it applies to other things, too. Um, I mean, I've, I've read about, um, you know, more cancer diagnoses because people stopped getting checkups for two years. Um, and, you know, that, that, that this had a, a ripple effect throughout the not just the economy, but like but affecting everyone's health. And yes, <clears throat> deaths of despair, drug addiction. And, you know, it opens up the question of did the lockdowns, did the closures do more harm than good? I mean, it's hard to sum that up with a yes or no, but don't we have to try to start answering that question? Yeah, it's a good question. It's also impossible to answer definitively. You can't say lockdown is good, lockdown is bad. What, what I argued for is we needed, and, and this was longtime public health approach, which was lockdowns are okay in a discrete place for a discrete time. They are not some kind of universal, long-term, across the country and in, infinite in time approach, because that is not sustainable. So if you say, well, this is a real problem in New York City, let's have a lockdown in New York City, but Nebraska, where people live far apart from each other and the disease doesn't appear to be raging, maybe let's not impose that in Nebraska at the same time we're having a problem in New York City. So I think there needed to be more flexibility of approach. And in some ways, the blue state, red state dichotomy made some sense where certain governors said, okay, we're going to keep it more open. And other governors said, we're going to keep more closed. But they needed to make those decisions based on the prevalence of the disease, not their own personal politics. And I think that's where things got away from us. Well, I, I think that's undoubtedly true. I think attitudes towards, you know, the lockdowns quickly became one about, you know, how do you feel, you know, how do you feel about liberty? I mean, I mean, that's maybe, an, you know, a, a sort of slanted way to, to ask the question, but it seemed to be, you know, that, that seemed to be how people thought about it. I mean, you know, are, are you part of the team doing the collective effort or just like, let's, let's, let's live our lives the way we, we did. It's not clear to me. You probably know much more about the data than I do, or most of our, our, our listeners or viewers, but, you know, it doesn't seem to me that those even, you know, sort of the, the case of Florida, which is, uh, you know, a state with a lot of elderly people and a lot of cities, um, but still had different COVID policies because of Governor Ron DeSantis uh, in large measure. Um, it's not clear that they did any worse than New York. Um, is there any way, you know, you say it's it's hard to, you know, to judge. So I've looked into the data a little bit and it seems mm -hmm. to me Go ahead, please. it is not clear that a state that had stricter lockdowns did better or worse than a state that had uh, a lighter touch. But it is clear that if you combine economic impact plus COVID impact, the states that had the lighter, um, the, the lighter touch on the lockdowns did better. So I think that, you know, and the, and the economic impact is also important. So again, it doesn't seem to me like a stricter regime really re reduced that number of deaths, but it doesn't also seem to me that you can say that a light regime 
had no impact either. But it does seem to me that if you combine the question of health impact plus economic impact, the states with the lighter regime did better. Yeah, I, I, you know, there's, there's another question that intrigues me. I'm not sure that there's any way to fully answer it. But one of the things that I, I find fascinating in, you know, during the pandemic, after it, talking to people about their attitudes towards restrictions, is that what made some groups eagerly, you know, eager to, to follow them and others in, inherently resistant? Um, was it politics? You know, would it have been different if if president if it had been President Hillary Clinton presiding over a pandemic as opposed to a President Donald Trump? How much? I mean, we live in this hyperpartisan era where it defines everything. You know, it's you know I, I've often written about how politics now plays the role that religion used to play in most people's lives. How much did, did politics drive our reactions and how society reacted? You know, dealt with with this challenge which was a generational challenge. It had not been, we faced nothing in this country since the, the, the flu, you know, pandemic and a century earlier. How much was politics behind the way we, we, we did all of this stuff? Yeah, I think politics had a huge impact on it. And first of all, I agree with your larger point about how politics seems to have supplanted religion as the source of differences. I mean, it used to be you would have people of different religious faiths didn't feel like they could get together because they had such disagreement on their, their religious practices, their religious faith. And now it's you can't get along with someone if you have different political beliefs, whereas you don't care if the person's a Protestant, a Catholic, Jew. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the intermarriage statistics. The, the attitudes towards intermarriage statistics tell it all. And, you know, in the 1950s, uh, my favorite statistic, in the 1950s, Americans were against interracial marriage and inter, inter, interfaith marriage. Today, by the same numbers, they're all fine with it, or at least say they're all fine with it. But now they say by the same majorities that they used to oppose interracial marriage, they oppose marriage of their children to somebody from a different political party. Right. So, and yeah. this is the, the fault of some of the religious organizations themselves. I mean, you know, you and I have both talked about how in the reformed Jewish movement, politics is the religion. Right? You can't go to a reform service without hearing the political views of the rabbi and the reform movement. And, uh, you know, I think that's a problem. I think when politics gets in the way of religion or, or supplants religion, then your deepest held beliefs are about politics and not necessarily about your relationship with God or your relationship to your community. So I, I think that is a larger problem. But in terms of your initial question, you, I mean, you raised the point about, and your initial question being, is, is there a political element to who is against the lockdowns, who is for the lockdowns? So I, I do think that some of it had to do with who is the political leader in charge. And, you know, the hysteria against DeSantis was uh, a lot of, you know, liberal mainstream media from New York and Washington just not liking a, a Republican Florida governor. But I think also some of it was what, what you really hit the nail on the head on, where you talk about liberty, a different conception of liberty. You believe that the state has the right to tell you what to do and how to act then you're going to be more compliant and less concerned about the lockdowns. Whereas if you have a fundamental belief in liberty where the state should have very few circumstances in which they can be telling you what to do or how to educate your children or how to navigate the challenges in life, then you're going to be much more resistant to the heavy-handed public health approach. Yeah, well, I think one of the most troubling aspects of COVID was how it quickly erased centuries of American traditions about civil liberties, uh, with the specter of a public health emergency 
you know, not only being a reason to close schools, houses of prayers, but not liquor stores or Walmarts, um, you know, but because it, it, it sort of, you know, it transformed it. You know, when you have a permanent temporary emergency, the rules don't seem to apply. I mean, it led to collusion between government officials, mainstream media outlets, and big tech oligarchs to silence dissenting views. Um, and not and just somebody, on COVID, right? And not just on COVID. Yes, we know. It's on, on, Hunter, on Hunter Biden. Biden situation. You know, but certainly let's, let's you know, leave Hunter Biden aside for a moment. But as someone who thinks a lot about public health, how did we arrive at a concept of a seemingly permanent temporary public emergency in which rights could be abridged you know, almost. You know, it it took the the Supreme Court a you know a year and a half to you know to 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 sort of roll back some of this stuff. And how do we ensure that something like that doesn't happen again? Yeah. Well, look. I think part of it is the um, is the focus on behavioral health that I mentioned. There's a sense that the behavioral health public health community is hectoring people about personal choices and personal behaviors, and people get resentful of that, especially people in the let's call let's call them the pro liberty camp. And the more annoyed they get by that, the less interested they are in hearing what the, the, the same public health bureaucracy has to say about a communicable disease, especially since they haven't handled the communicable disease so well. They weren't able to create the tests necessary. They didn't have clear or accurate information about what was going on and what was the problem and how to address it. So I think that's part of it. And then also, and I talk about this in, in the commentary piece that you mentioned, the public health bureaucracy started treating COVID as a behavioral health issue. Meaning if you get COVID, it's because you didn't wear your mask or you went out and you didn't obey the lockdown and you didn't uh, get the vaccine and you know it's on you, it's your fault. And that again, contributed to this sense of hectoring that has- The complete opposite of, you know, when you think back to the efforts to ensure that we didn't stigmatize people because of disease, especially when you think of the AIDS you know, epidemic where it, you know, it was very important for people to understand it's not the fault of people getting it, you know, even if it was, you know, whether or not it was behavioral that nobody wanted to stigmatize people. They were very eager to stigmatize people for this. Yeah, it's interesting, but old habits die hard. So they were very eager to stigmatize people within COVID. But at the same time, I mentioned monkeypox. And nobody wanted to talk about how monkeypox <laughs> right. was being spread. Right, exactly. My daughter, who is a in a religious high school, came home to me and said that she was worried about monkeypox. I said, "You have zero chance of getting monkeypox. This is not something <laughs> to be worried about." Right. And if you do have well, a chance, then it's something I should be worried about. Right. <laughs> well, exactly, because it was involved. You know, people involved in group. You know, group sex. Um, right. But, not even individual monogamous relationships. This was in group. Yeah. Group homosexual sex is, was the, the main cause of, of monkeypox. I mean, that, that's where it was coming from. And the papers would go to these torturous ways to avoid saying what was actually happening. Yeah. Um, amazing. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot really to digest there. Um, but I, I do want to switch topics on you now and to ask you to uh, put on your hat, uh, both as a former White House liaison to the Jewish community and as, you know, a thinking Jew, and discuss, you know, this, what we're seeing now, this rise of anti-Semitism that is so evident in our society. We, we tend to focus on celebrity events that mainstreams Jew hatred and certainly, you know, former President Trump's dinner with Kanye West and his alt-right uh, Holocaust-denying sidekicks uh, is, is certainly something I've written about and, 
you know, it's it's something we should care about. But the problem is much bigger than that and is evident on both ends of the spectrum. Yet seemingly everyone on both the left and the right has tunnel vision and only sees it in their political enemies and excuses it when it concerns their allies. I mean, that that's where we are now, aren't we? Yeah. And first of all, Jonathan, let me commend you for the good things you've been writing about this issue. And you were totally right to condemn President Trump for the anti-Semitic feast, I call it. I mean, they, they get together. Yeah. Not not all of my readers were so happy with that piece that's, because that's, we are so and, polarized. But you also had the key line, which you know I, I tweeted about just briefly, that um, we are not going to be able to address this problem unless we see anti-Semitism in all of its sources and in all the places where it's coming. And then we have so much more leverage to address it. And it's important to recognize that there are not two sources of anti-Semitism left and right. There are really four sources of anti-Semitism that we're dealing with in the United States right now. One is this, you certainly write about this a lot, the kind of anti-Israel hysteria from the left that really bleeds over into anti-Semitism. It's not just legitimate criticism of the state of Israel, but it really is a form of modern anti-Semitism. It's very disturbing. The second is the kind of white nationalists, all right, Jews will not replace us, standard hatred of Jews, which is kind of the hatred of Jews that we've been accustomed to, unfortunately, for centuries then the third is there is also Muslim anti-Semitism that's rooted in anti-Israel, but we saw it manifest itself when there was the Gaza war about a year ago and you had Palestinians riding around in pickup trucks looking for Jews to beat up on the street. They went to a kosher restaurant in L.A. and they found Jews in, uh, in North Miami and, and they just went and they harassed Jews because they were Jewish. And then. So uh, you have those three sources. And then the fourth one that liberals really don't want to talk about is African-American anti-Semitism, which is disturbing in a number of ways. One, it's manifesting itself in these attacks on Jews on the streets of Brooklyn that are never punished. They never go after the perpetrator. They do not arrest them. They do not convict them. They do not punish them in any way. People are, it's open season on Jews wearing religious garb in in Brooklyn, and a lot of it comes from the African American community. Yeah, let me just, yeah. just let me just interject. You're, you know, I don't want to, you know, stop you there, but I mean, we're you and I are speaking just a day or two after new hate crime statistics in New York, which showed a huge increase in anti-Semitic hate crime, which makes up most of the hate crimes being reported in New York. Um, basically, every several hours, a Jew is being attacked in the largest Jewish city in the world. Um, you know, I, I noted that when people were joking, you know, people were laughing at Dave Chappelle's sort of, uh, you know, uh, Saturday Night Live, uh, you know, monologue about Kanye West and, uh, you know, and Kyrie Irving and, uh, you know, not don't blame black people and don't blame, you know, it's it's not that big a deal. It's not crazy. You know, it's not crazy to talk about Jews in Hollywood, but it is crazy. It's not crazy to think it. It's crazy to talk about it. Well, those people were sitting in a studio, only a subway right away from where attacks on Jews were happening by blacks. Right. And then also, this is also disturbing, is that you think that, okay, as education increases, that you will see anti-Semitism go down. And that has not been the case in the black community for a while. And recently, there is also some suggestions that with college education, you get people more anti-Semitic. And I think that may have something to do with the anti-Israel um, leftist anti-Semitism. Yeah, intersectionality and critical race theory, uh, which gives a, a virtual permission slip for anti-Semitism. Right. So there's four sources of anti-Semitism that allow all kinds of groups to say, it's not me, it's them. And it's not them. In some ways, it's all of us, right? There are major 
problems with anti-Semitism today, and we need to be able to address them and kind of like with COVID, be honest about where it's coming from. We can't suppress or hide where these things are coming from. And I am not one, Jonathan, if you know me, I'm not one to sit around and wring my hand and say anti-Semitism is terrible. So what, one of the um, things I'm trying to do is develop a series of policy proposals that we can advocate as right-leaning Jews, Jews who believe in liberty, on how to address anti-Semitism in a serious and systematic way so that we can see these this ugly resurgence that we're seeing in recent years. We can see maybe that will become the anomaly and we can go back to the period where we did see a real reduction of it in, let's say, the 70s and 80s and 90s before it, its ugly reappearance in recent years. So I think we need to take some time, come up with a, a thoughtful agenda and really press that agenda and make sure that, you know, People understand that there will be multiple oxes gored because it's coming from different populations with people uh, who from people of different allies on the political spectrum. And some of those allies might get hurt in the process. Yeah, I think that's 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 very true. We do need you know more concrete proposals because the concrete proposals that we're hearing now from the Jewish community from places like the Anti-Defamation League basically involves more Internet censorship. Um, you know, their involvement with, uh, you know, with companies like PayPal, um, basically assisting them in demonetizing anybody they don't like, which, you know, the, 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 the line between, you know, their claims of hate and politics, especially when they become so liberal and, and so partisan, you know, it basically has disappeared. And I, I think that's not suppressing anti-Semitism. It's, 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 it's avoiding the problem and, and, Making it, uh, I think, making certainly making the situation worse and not able. It's it's not uniting people because you know such proposals are just seen as you know another threat, like the COVID uh, censorship, another way of shutting people up. Um, even though these are things we should be worried about, we should be worried about anti-Semitism on the internet. We should be worried about the way celebrities are spreading it and mainstreaming it, but. We don't, we don't seem to have a, a more sensible approach that will look at it at both ends. Yeah, and, and I do think it's a problem, and you've written about this, I know, is that, that the ADL has kind of fallen down on the job. I mean, Abe Foxman used to be the head of the ADL, and I certainly didn't agree with him on any issue, on every issue. We disagreed many a time. But you knew that he was against anti-Semitism wherever it manifested, and he would call it out wherever he saw it. Sometimes he saw it where it maybe not didn't exist, but he called out anti-Semitism wherever he saw it, and he didn't care left, right, center, Muslim, black, white, whatever. And in this new manifestation of the ADL, it's a real problem. They are very reluctant to recognize anti-Semitism that comes from the left, that comes from the African-American community. They don't want to talk about it, but they are very eager not only to highlight it, in it when it comes from the nationalist right, but to see if they can suppress any views on the nationalist, not on the not, not just the nationalist right, but anywhere on the conservative side of the spectrum that disagrees with their policy views. And they're conflating that with anti-Semitism in a way that I think is very dangerous. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think it, what worries me is whether there's a path forward in discussing anti-Semitism. Because quite, quite frankly, I'm not so sure at a time of unprecedented partisanship, it, where it, it's almost certainly to remain a political uh, football uh, employed by both sides wherever, whenever it's convenient, while we ignore things like the epidemic of anti-Semitic violence in New York, um, you know, so it, it becomes impossible. Um, and and it, it becomes inherently politicized in a way I think 
it never really was before, uh, at least, you know, certainly not in my lifetime. Well, I, I would agree with that it has become increasingly political, but, you know, I, I tend to be somewhat hopeful on these things just because things are very partisan now and hyper-partisan. Now. That doesn't mean they're going to stay that way. And, I mean, you know, you know Barry, Barry Weiss has this great line in her book about anti-Semitism. She said, in the old country, Catholics and Protestants used to kill each other. Now they have brunch. And that gets to the thing you were talking about in terms of religion uh, being replaced by top politics. But, you know, maybe politics will not be the be-all and end-all that it is right now forever. And maybe we'll move on to something else. And you know, it could have problematic aspects in one element, but also maybe it'll tone down the, the partisan divides in ways that could be potentially helpful. Well, that is a very optimistic thought. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm buying it right now, uh, maybe because I'm in the middle of, you know, of a daily news cycle. But um, that, that is, that's well, a nice look, thought. But you're right. But you're right. Because, but you, right but I'll agree to one extent. If there's anything you should learn from the news business is that everything changes and certainly political reality changes. Things you think are certain you know, in one cycle are totally not true in the next cycle. The pollsters who have their finger on the public's uh, pulse, you know, in 2016 and 2020, you know, flopped in 2022. So, uh, you know, who knows? Look, I remember 1988 when the Democrats lost the presidential election, third consecutive election loss, and they thought they would never win a presidential election again, right? Yeah. They've only lost the majority of the popular vote in a presidential election once since then. And they yeah, thought well, there was it, this... That, that's so true. I mean, listen, anytime anybody wins an election in, in this country, they always act like they, it's the start of a thousand year Reich. I mean, Republicans, the one time you cited in 2004 and the Republicans won a majority, everybody thought that Karl Rove had found them the, the formula for, you know, permanent Republican victory. And, you know, two years later, you know, that was done. But the same thing happens on the other t side, too. So, yes, nothing. Right, because nothing people react to what, ha what happened. So Karl Rove, who, with whom I worked, uh, had had some really interesting strategic insights and they were useful, but the other side reacted to his strategic insights and they counterpunched. It's like the uh, famous Mike Tyson line: "Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's actually funnier if you say it in his if you imitate his voice, but it's it's it's, it's a great uh, piece of philosophy. <laughs> but I'm happy to go on your podcast, true. but I'm not going to get canceled over it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's turn just for a moment to Israel. You're someone with a family in Israel. Um, and what we're hearing right now about the prospective new government and, and how it's going to be spurned by American Jewry and the Biden administration. Um, sort of what's your take on that, that this latest thing that the new Israel, you know, obviously we've been hearing for you know a generation about declining interest and declining support for Israel. But what's your take on, you know, the, the, the world coming to an end because of uh, Netanyahu's new government? Well, I know, as you can tell from this entire conversation, I'm not a world coming to the end type of guy. Um, I generally tend to be pretty optimistic. Uh, I think we're in a better place in this country than we were 30 years ago and then we were 50 years ago. And, and we're going to continue to get better. That said, I recognize there are problems. Um, but look at look, also look at Israel. Israel's in a better place than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I mean, look, I remember the um, you know the wars of the 60s and 70s. Uh, I remember the inflation of the 80s. I remember when Israel um, you know, was kind of a um, you know, economic mouse and a, a military mouse, and now it's um, mighty in both areas. So uh, you know, do I agree with everybody in Netanyahu's coalition? No, but do I also recognize that? Um, 
I don't necessarily take the word of the New York Times on what people think in Israel and what the, the views of everybody in Israel. So, I, you know, I'm also, I have somewhat skeptical views of how the New York Times portrays Israel. And I listened to uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, or Prime Minister-to-be again, Netanyahu, on Barry Weiss's podcast. He made a really interesting point. He said, we had anti-democratic forces in the last Israeli government. They were members of the Muslim Brotherhood. And yeah. nobody said a word about them. So, you know, they, they were praised for being there. Right. Yes, right. absolutely. It's the it's a point there I've are made going to be problematic, yeah. and there are going to be pro problematic elements in any government coalition. Uh, the question to Netanyahu is, how does he control them, and how does he maintain? And he says, look, it's at the end of the day, it is my government, it is my uh, you know, my administration, and I'm going to be shaping what the policies are. And you know, the, the, the guy's done a pretty good job so far. Uh, you know, the, the Abraham Accords were a huge leap forward. Uh, the way he transformed the Israeli economy uh, was, was really uh, helpful, I think. And I also believe that uh, if you look at his record, there's been no major war in his tenure. And he's had more years as uh, head of Israel than anyone else. So you know, I'm willing to give him some wiggle room to see how he can figure this out. They've had a lot of different elections where they were unable to get a definitive result. Now they have a definitive result. I understand that there are some people that I don't agree with who are in the coalition, but let's see how it plays out before declaring the end of democratic Israel or Abe Foxman, who we mentioned earlier, saying he's got to rethink his relationship with Israel. I, I don't necessarily buy that. I, you know, I'm not a citizen of Israel. They vote for who they vote for. I support the country regardless of whether the left is in power or the right is in power. There are elements I like, there are elements I, I don't like, but I, I'm taking much more of a wait and see attitude than the hysterics who are saying, you know, I'm done with Israel. Yeah, I think that's very sensible. And I think most of the time when people say they are fighting to defend democracy, it often just means they're worried about the outcome of the next democratic election and uh, how they can uh, get around it. Um, and I think Abe Foxman seemed to be more uh, worried about uh, staying in touch with his uh, liberal friends right now than... <laughs> Than uh, you know his connection with Israel, which I'm sure will remain strong. Um, my last question for you, Tevi, is: What's your next book? What's the project that you're working on? Um, what should we look forward from you in the in the future? Well, I'm always doing a lot of writing, and people could sign up for all of my articles at uh, tevitroy.org. Um, I do have a book that is an edited volume on the future of the presidency. It's uh, on the 21st century presidency and how the presidency has changed in the 20 years in this, in, in this century. Um, and I argue that the parameters have expanded greatly in ways that might be dangerous to uh, democratic politics. Uh, so we need to think about what powers and what responsibilities we're gonna impose on the presidency, because if each president increases the power and the parameters of the president a little bit, over a 20 year period, we've seen this massive expansion. And I think we need to try and find ways to deal with that and maybe slow the growth of the, of the executive. Well, that sounds very sensible. I think 50 years ago, people were talking about Nixon's imperial presidency, but it, you know, it wasn't a patch on uh, with the power that it's been given now. Uh, we'll look forward to that, Debbie, and hopefully we'll have you back uh, perhaps to discuss it when it comes out. Um, Tevi, thanks so much for coming on today. Uh, we also want to thank our audience. Please remember to tune in every day for Top Story Daily Edition. And whether you're listening to us on Spotify or any of the other podcast platforms, watching us live on Facebook or Twitter or on the JNS YouTube channel or later on JBS TV, please like and or subscribe to Top Story. Click on the bell for notifications and give us good reviews. Please write to us at editor 
jns.org and let us know where you listen or watch the show and what you think about it. And remember, keep reading and thinking for yourself, and we'll see you again next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.